Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Yesterday, we looked at the first greater than argument, which was that Jesus is greater than the prophets. prophets. All right. What are some of the reasons Hebrews gives that Jesus is greater than the prophets? Yeah, that's one that's one part of it. What else? What's the relationship between um, the father and the prophets? And the mess in the relationship between the father and Jesus is different. He's the yeah, father and son. Um, and then in chapter two, the transition starts talking about Jesus being greater than the angels. Okay, and and. All of the quotes from chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 starts off, and the author just quotes from what over and over again? Old Testament. Old Testament. And all of the things in the Old Testament are text, which people had already recognized were prophecies about the Messiah. And now the author is, of course, applying those to Jesus. And... Um, the uh, the text, he's using them to argue Jesus is better than the angels. Um, did God ever say to any of the angels, today you're my son, I've begotten you? No, but he said it to Jesus. Um, the uh, angels, in, in verse 6, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and as Moses is talking about the Messiah, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So the Savior is supposed to be worshipped by angels. Um Angels are ministers, they're servants, but of the, of the Savior, of God the Son, of Jesus, it said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And then he concludes by saying, The, um, the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve us. So as we're thinking about like this hierarchy of creation, we usually think God angels us. But Hebrews says, even though that, that is kind of true in a sense, we'll see him say that in chapter 2, that that is true in a sense. He says there's another sense in which you can think of it as the angels being below you. God has sent them out as servants for your sake. And then in chapter 2, the first four verses, we get a warning passage where the author says... Um, what message did the angels give according to scripture? The law. The law. And, and in the first warning passage, after he's established Jesus is greater than the angels, he says, now remember that the message that the angels gave was reliable. Whenever the people broke the law, whenever they broke the message given by the angels, what happened to them without fail? Punishment judgment. And then he says, now you've got one who is greater than the angels. Therefore, he brings a greater message than the angels. So if you neglect that message, or if you disobey that message, how will you escape? If the people in the Old Testament didn't escape, whenever they broke the lesser message given by the lesser messengers, how will you escape if you break the greater message? Now we get into uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and following, which I just have to say is probably like my favorite, favorite chapter of the Bible. So you should memorize Hebrews 2, and you should think about it for the rest of your life. You should. This is a great, great text. All right? 
He continues to make the argument that Jesus is better than the angels. And in chapter 2, verse 5, he starts by saying, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So now he's beginning to think about the, the new creation. All right. And whenever we all get into the new heavens and new earth, he says, it's not run by angels. It's going to be run by who? Who's going to to be king of kings and lord of lords in the new heavens and new earth? Jesus Jesus is. It's not going to be run by angels. It's going to be run run by Jesus. So he says, it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible, verse 6, it's been testified somewhere. Okay, put that into, like, common language. I don't know where it is. Eh, somewhere. It. somewhere in the Bible it says that you know, it's the, the, the most wonderful citation in the history of literature. If you did this on a Belial paper, you would be in trouble. But the Bible can do it. It's fine. The Bible's written by the Spirit. It's quoting a, a, a spirit-inspired... The, the Holy Spirit can't plagiarize himself, right? So he says, uh, somewhere back there, you know, it says... Um, that's just... I just always crack up whenever I read that. Don't you wish your citations could work that way? Don't you wish you could... Yeah, somewhere on the internet, I once read... Uh, you know, thanks for... Uh, one time, one time, um, I, was, I was reading a theology book. And this dude is um, he's making a connection between these two texts and then he puts a footnote and the footnote down at the bottom of the page you know footnotes you have your little number one and it says this was revealed oh no to me oh no in a dream and it, it wasn't anything wild and crazy I think that um you guys have maybe done this before. Have you, has something ever been on your mind, like, right before you went to bed, and then you, like, have a dream about it? I think that's what the guy did. He was studying whatever this was, like, right before he went to bed, and then his subconscious was, like, still trying to process it, and then he, like, had a dream where he figured it out, and then he felt the need to put a footnote and be like, I think, I think somehow God revealed it to me in a dream. But anyways, I just, I've always thought that was funny. But anyways, let's get back to this. So he's, he's making a transition point. He's still talking about Jesus being better than the angels. But in verse 5, he makes the point that it's not to angels that, that God is going to give the world to come. It's not going to be ruled by the angels. It's going to be ruled by Jesus. And then as a support for that, he says, it's been testified somewhere. And, and the somewhere is Psalm 8. Psalm 8. This is what it says. What is man? This is a prayer to God. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. You guys know what subjection means, right? Something is subject to you. That means that you are what? Yeah, yeah, in charge of it, in control of it. Good. So in Psalm 8, um, the author of Hebrews is reading Psalm 8 as a prophecy about the Messiah. For a little while, according to verse 7, he's made lower than the what? Angels. But for how long? 
A little while. And he had to be made lower than the angels for a little while, which means that formerly he was what? Above the angels. So in Psalm 8, notice that everything in Psalm 8 is talking about a singular person. You make him, not them. Right? If he's talking about mankind, he would need to say you made them. But he's talking about a singular person. He says you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So you've got this guy who used to, okay, here's the guy. Here are angels. He used to be above the angels, but for a short time, he was made lower than them. But then, according to Psalm 8 that's being quoted here, then this guy was crowned with glory and honor, and God put how much stuff under his feet? Everything. Everything. Would everything include the angels or exclude the angels? Include. Include. So this guy was made for a little while lower than the angels, but then he was put back... At, at kind of this top authority and everything, all right, I'll, I'll put little feet on this guy. There's his feet, right? And everything is under his feet. This is oh. a clever illustration. Give me some. <laughs> there we go. All right. So, you see what I did there? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm lazy and I don't want to write extra things on the board. Now, um, <clears throat> picking up after the quotation in verse 8, it says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But then there's a problem that the author is going to have to deal with. All right. He's been arguing throughout chapters one, throughout chapters one and two. Has he been arguing that Jesus will be superior to the angels or that he is? Is. Is. Present tense. Right now, he's higher, superior to the angels. But Psalm 8 says that he's been crowned with glory and honor and that everything is is in subjection under his feet. And as you look at the world today, does it really look like and feel like everything is in subjection under Jesus' feet? Are there still a lot of bad things that happen that go against the will of God? Yeah, there sure are. So the author of Hebrews, at the end of verse 8, says, Now at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So right now he's exalted. He's crowned with glory and honor. But this putting everything in subjection under his feet, that's an ongoing process. It's still happening right now, right? There's going to be a day where everything is fully subjected to Christ, but right now we're in the process of that happening. Uh, look up at verse 13 of chapter 1. It quotes from Psalm 110, and what does, it, what does the quote say? Verse 13 of chapter 1. Yeah, and where is Jesus right now according to the New Testament? Sitting at the right hand of God. So he's sitting at the right hand of God while God is making his enemies his footstool. That's something that's happening right now. Whenever that's finished, he won't be sitting at the right hand of God anymore. Where will he be? Second coming. But until all of his enemies are made his footstool, he's sitting at the Father's right hand. So 
We pick up now in chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Uh, Notice that phrasing for a second. Um, We've already talked about in chapter 1 how God created the world through Christ and how Jesus is sustaining the world. But notice the phrasing in verse 10. It was fitting that he, not only by whom all things exist, but right at the beginning, for whom? What is the purpose of the world existing, according to that phrase? Yeah, it exists for Jesus. There's an idea present in the New Testament that Jesus, as God's son, is the heir of all things. God created the heavens and the earth. He's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. He's going, he created us all for his son as an inheritance, as a gift of love. Everything exists for the sake of Christ. So verse 10, it says, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Um, Back in verse 11, it says Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? brothers and then in verse 13 it's because we along with him are children of god and then verses 14 through 18 i think are like probably um i I, I've, i've been talking about how hebrews 2 is is a favorite of mine it's really because of verses 14 through 18 this paragraph i think is uh one of the uh just one of the most wonderful portions of scripture that we have And in verses 14 through 18, it says, it's just called us children. And then it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. All right, what does that mean so far? Yeah, he became flesh flesh and blood because we are flesh and blood. And he did that, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, Looking down at chapter 3, what is the good to better argument that Paul's going to start playing with in chapter 3? Or that, Josh, I did it, I called him Paul, that the author of Hebrews is going to start playing with in chapter 3? Moses. Jesus being better than Moses. He's already anticipating this right here because notice the language that he's using. Um, Just bear with me for a second. Um, Lifelong slavery, deliverance. What stories does this bring to your mind? The Exodus story. In in chapter 2, 14 through 18, the author of Hebrews is making a parallel between Jesus and Moses already. 
in between the gospel and the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, Israel is in slavery in Egypt. They are enslaved under Pharaoh. They are saved um, by Moses uh, through the Passover and the Red Sea event. And notice the parallels that are drawn in Hebrews 2. The children share in flesh and blood. He likewise partook of the same things that through his death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Who is your slave master in this? Not Pharaoh, but the devil. The devil. By the way, you know that Pharaohs, um, they wear this weird crown on their heads that have these two snakes on them. So whenever Pharaoh is, uh, you know, oppressing Israel in the Old Testament, he's kind of a picture of the what? The serpent. Moses killed a serpent, Pharaoh. Jesus kills the serpent, the devil. He did this that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, They were in slavery in Egypt. We were in slavery in our sin. He's a new Moses. Um, And, you know, we... Passover and the Red Sea event are related. We could say Passover. He saves them through the Passover and and then at the Red Sea. And Jesus is able to accomplish our salvation through uh, the death of a firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn son of God. And so Jesus accomplishes our salvation through the death of a firstborn, through a different type of Passover event. He shares in flesh and blood that he might die through his death. He destroys the power of the devil. He frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from death. You know, Satan has power over us because we are sinners. We are enslaved to sin, and then that leads us to death. But Jesus comes and he defeats the power of sin. Therefore, he delivers us from death and destroys the power of the devil. And then in verse 16, he says, For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Did Jesus come to save angels? He came to save what? People. People. And and we know that from what it already said in verse 14. The children share in flesh and blood. Therefore, Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He became a human being to save human beings. If Jesus was going to save the fallen angels, you know what? He he wouldn't have been the God-man. He would have had to be the what? The God angel. But he didn't come to save angels. Higher on his priority list was the salvation of humanity. So, if Jesus wasn't obsessed with angels, even whenever he was made lower than the angels, uh, should the... uh, should the people reading the book of Hebrews, you know, be so obsessed with angels? No. Verse 17, therefore, and notice that there's an intensification here. Um, beforehand, Jesus shared in what? Like his brothers. The, sh- the children shared in? 
and therefore he became like them, sharing in flesh and blood. Verse 17 is an intensification. Not, he's not just sharing in flesh and blood, but in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in what? Every respect. Yeah. Everything that makes us us, everything that makes a human being a human being, Jesus partook of. What are things that human beings have? We have flesh and blood, which would be bodies. What else do we have? Huh? Soul? What else? Is that essential to humanity, though? Was there a human being that was, you can think of in the Bible, who was not always a sinner? Adam. And whenever we make it to the new heavens and new earth, are we still going to have a sin nature? No. So it's not an essential component of being a human to have a sin nature. And your memory verse today, um, Jesus was tempted in every respect like we were, yet without sin. sin, right? So body and soul, what else do human beings have? Mind, emotions. What else? All of us are either boys or girls, so that would be a what? What word would we maybe use for that? Gender or sexuality? I think there's technically a difference between gender and sexuality. I'm not 100% sure what it is. I've always like kind of understood that to be synonymous, but anyways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of these different things, right? We, we, we learn in Scripture all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our wills, every human being has a will, Right? So, um, in, in this, it says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, every facet of, of what makes a human being a human being Jesus had. Okay, we said a minute ago that the logic is for him to save human beings, he had to become a... And for if he was going to save angels, he would have had to say he would have had to become a an angel, right? Well, now follow that out a little bit long, a little bit further. All right, to save human beings, he has to become a human being. Well, what if he had become a human being and he had everything that makes us us except for um, I don't know emotions? What would he have been able to save? Everything but the emotions. Imagine that he took every part of humanity except for a mind. Then he would have been able to save what? Everything except a mind. He became a whole person, though, in order to save whole people. He became like you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to save every part of who you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes we get this idea that the only part of us that God is particularly concerned about is like the spiritual part of us. Hebrews 2 tells us that that's not true. Jesus became 100% human in order to save 100% humans. God cares about every part of who we are. Jesus became fully man to save uh, full men and women too. It says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So, now we get into the third... The third bad to good argument, right? No, good to better. What is it? Good to better. What is it? The good to better. Good to better arguments. <laughs> Prophet, angel, what's next? Moses. Moses. Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just like Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So high view of Moses. Moses was, what adjective does it use? Faithful. Faithful. But in verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So, Moses was great. Moses was good. But Jesus is better. So don't go back. Don't sacrifice the message of the gospel that there is this great uh, God-man who has died for your sin. Don't give up on that message to go back to the lesser message of Moses and the angels. That message has a purpose. It has a point. And the purpose and the point of it, by the way, is in verse 5, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses and the, angel, and the angels preached a message that pointed us forward to the message of Christ. So it's important, but don't give up the substance for the shadow. Don't give up the better for the good. In the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, we get our second warning passage, and it is, it's long. It's a pretty, pretty lengthy one. Um, we won't touch on it today. We'll save that for Monday. But basically what um, this warning passage will do is it will use this comparison between Jesus and Moses and therefore make a comparison between the people of Jesus, which would be the church, and the people of Moses, which would... Uh, the people of Moses spent most of their time where? In the wilderness. So the church will be compared to the wilderness generation. And uh, wilderness generation, they did well or they did poorly? And so Hebrews 3 and 4 is going to try to help you understand that you are in a position just like them. And you should learn from their mistakes. Don't be like them. Because if they didn't listen to the lesser message of the lesser prophet Moses, but they were still punished then how much more if you don't listen to the greater message of the greater prophet, Jesus. So we'll pick up with that on Monday. Um, Maybe you should review part of that before our our class discussion. We're also going, if I am undisciplined and I rabbit trail, we're going to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. 
but I'm hoping to avoid that. But I'm probably going to get partway into this and see the thing in Hebrews 4 and say, ah, but that thing is so good, and then rabbit trail. But I need to be disciplined and not do that. Now, so. we were looking through 